Now, let's, let's turn our attention to God's Word. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, Deuteronomy 10 and 17, Moses says this, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. Let's pray together. God, it's so good to be in your house. Thank you for this. Thank you for an opportunity to gather with your people in your house, on your day, around your word. What a blessing. Thank you for this. Lord, we pray for those who could not be here today, and we ask your blessing on them, protection, healing, whatever the situation might be. We pray that you just uh, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But Lord, thank you for these. We thank you for our YEC weekend and all those who were involved, either as student participants or as adult leaders. Thank you for each and every one of them, and we pray that that this weekend would have an impact uh, for, the time, for the days to come. Now, help us to clear our minds, to focus on you, and Lord, show us what you would have us to, to, to see and hear and know and do and be. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we begin a new series of messages called Unsolved Mysteries. And we're going to be looking at some of the unsolved mysteries of the Christian faith. Some of the unsolvable mysteries of the Christian faith. What one writer called the weird stuff of Christianity. Just the weird stuff. The mysteries of, of the Christian faith. Um, this is going to be a different kind of a, a, a preaching for us. Our typical diet around here is what's called expository preaching. And that's where we look at a text in its context and identify truths in that text and then make application of those truths to our daily lives. That's what we do 96% of the time. But this is going to be a different kind of a series. It's really more topical than textual. And the topics are really going to be theologically driven, theologically defined. As we look at some of the unsolvable mysteries, the paradoxes, the, the, the confusing things about, the, uh, about our faith, just things that we, we can't understand, we don't comprehend, we can't really explain it, but we're just going to have to accept it by faith. God has revealed it, the Bible teaches it, and we just we take it by faith. Even if we can't understand it and can't explain it, we just believe it. The weird stuff of Christianity. And all that mystery really begins with a mysterious God. It starts with a mysterious God, and it's going to take us back around to a mysterious God. So let's start with him this morning. That's our great and awesome God. Notice how Moses describes God here in Deuteronomy ten seventeen. He's the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Moses uses the same language in Deuteronomy 7. He says, You shall not dread them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. Nehemiah uses the same terminology about three different times. In Nehemiah 1.5, Nehemiah is praying, and he says, I beseech you, Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God. In Nehemiah 4.14, he says, When I saw their fear, I rose up and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Don't be afraid of them, for the Lord our God is great and awesome. In Nehemiah 9, uh, Nehemiah is praying, Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Just the same words that Moses used. Daniel uses the same language. Daniel 9.4. Daniel prays, Alas, O Lord, the great and Awesome God who keeps his covenant and love and kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. He is the great and awesome God. Now, here's the problem. In our common everyday vernacular, we have overused those words to death. 
And now, I mean, everything is great and everything's awesome. In fact, Seinfeld, y'all know the comedian Seinfeld, Seinfeld has a whole routine now based on proving that great doesn't mean great anymore. You know, you, you, you drop your ice cream on the sidewalk, great. You know, and so it just everything's great. And everything's awesome. You know, awesome. He's awesome. You're awesome. I'm awesome. Pizza's awesome. That was an awesome movie. That's, you know, everything is awesome. And when everything is great and everything is awesome, nothing is great. Nothing is awesome. Now, it's, if you really want it to be awesome, it's got to be super awesome or it's not awesome at all. It's got to be super awesome or totally awesome. And when we say that God is awesome, I don't mean he's awesome like he's totally awesome, dude. It's not that kind of awesome. We need to go back to the classic definition of awesome. The dictionary definition, here's your outline. The dictionary definition of awesome means inspiring reverence, dread, and wonder. That's awesome. When something is awesome, classically, that means it, that, that thing, that person, that event, whatever it is, has, it inspires an emotional response, and, and it's a mixed emotions. There is respect and reverence. Mingled with a fear and a dread, mingled with wonder and marvel and astonishment and amazement. When you have all that together, that's awesome. Um, maybe you've been to Niagara Falls. If you've ever been to Niagara Falls, especially the Canadian side of Niagara Falls, there's, there's a railing, a banister that you can get right up to the river before it goes over the falls. And when you see the, the volume of water, the current of that river, the power of the falls, just the lethality of it, and then there's the sound, all together, it's, it's pretty awesome. And, and you almost can't help but think, man, what if I fell over this railing? That's it. I mean, you, you couldn't swim against it. You couldn't stand up. You'd be washed away like a, like a leaf on, on a wave. I mean, phew, you're gone. And you'd most certainly die in the falls. And as you look at Niagara Falls and you take that whole scene in, there is reverence and there's respect and there's fear and there's dread and there's wonder and marvel and amazement. It's, all, it's totally awesome, dude. <laughs> or if you've ever seen a volcano and you think about the power of Mount St. Helens or Mount Vesuvius and there you are at the edge of a volcano and you see that, that lava boiling around and moving and you just, you, there is that reverence and respect and there's a fear and there's a dread and there's wonder and marvel and amazement. Awesome. Our God is a great and awesome God. He is mysterious. Let's think about this mysterious God for a little bit this morning. First of all, I want you to see that God is unmanageable. Our great and awesome God is unmanageable. Now, let me show you something that just it blows my ever-loving mind. Go to Exodus 19. How great and awesome our God is and how incredibly dumb people can be. In Exodus 19, the context here, Moses, God has used Moses to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. They've been slaves for 400 years. God is bringing them out of Egyptian bondage. You know the story, the 10 plagues crossing the Red Sea, and God brings them to Mount Sinai, and God is going to meet with his people there at Mount Sinai, and that's where he's going to make a covenant with them. I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my people, and here's what that's going to mean, what that's going to look at. So here's where he's going to make a covenant. But I want you to get the, the scene here. In Exodus 19 and verse 16, so here they are. They've come to Mount Sinai, 
And it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. See, that's fear and dread and reverence and wonder and marvel. Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke, because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down, warn the people so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. You think you're going to come up here? You'll die in the process. So also let the priests come near to the Lord to consecrate themselves, or else the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. The Lord said to him, go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you, but do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Can you imagine the scene? Smoke, like that, like that thick black dark smoke that comes out of a furnace. Fire, lightning, the sound of a trumpet. The whole mountain is quaking. Don't try to come up here, you'll die trying. I mean, just, whoo, that's awesome. Let's keep going. Chapter 20, verse 18. All the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the smoke of the, the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking. When the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Why? Because he's great and awesome. They said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we were listen, but don't let God speak to us or we will die. That's awesome. That's awe. Move over to chapter 24. Same time, same channel, same event, same place. In chapter 24 and verse 15, Moses went up to the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. Can you just imagine what that might have looked like? Here's this mountain on fire. <laughs> fire, smoke, thunder, lightning. Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. There's one word that describes all of that. Awesome. Awesome. Fear, respect, dread, wonder, marvel, amazement. Awesome. But now watch this. Go to chapter 32. Again, same time, same place, same event. Exodus 32 and verse 1. Moses has been up on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. Aaron said to them, well, tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast day to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Lord have mercy. I mean, what? 
What is wrong with these people? How could you be so foolish? I mean, five minutes ago, they saw this awesome God. They've seen the ten plagues in Egypt. They saw the crossing of the Red Sea. They've seen the fire on the mountain, smoke, lightning, thunder, mountain quaking. I mean, this great and awesome God. And then five minutes later, make us a golden calf. Oh, this is God. How could they be so dumb? Well, see, the thing is, we love idols. Always have. And ever since God made man in his own image, we've been trying so hard to make God in our image. It's the history of the world. We've been doing it since the beginning. And the history of of humanity, well, God has revealed himself to everybody in creation and conscience. Romans 1 says so that no man has no excuse. God has revealed himself in creation and in conscience to every person. And he has imprinted himself on us in our conscience. And so the, so the history of the world is that, that humanity has always sought someone or something out there that's bigger than we are. We know there's got to be. Someone or something, whether it's ancestral spirits or whether it's the sun and the moon and the stars or whether it's gods and goddesses or some monotheistic God, but there's got to be someone, something out there, especially that can help us to control the uncontrollable and help us manage the unmanageable. You know, we can't control the weather. Don't you wish we could? We can't control the weather. We can't make it rain when we want it to rain. We can't make it stop raining when we wish it'd stop raining. We need a God for that. And so next thing you know, we have storm gods that can help make it rain when we need rain. We can't control fertility, the fertility of our crops, the fertility of our livestock, or human fertility in our families. Next thing you know, we have fertility gods. We have fertility religions to help manage the unmanageable. In times of war, we need all the help we can get. We sure don't want to lose a war. So we need gods, gods of war, goddesses of war that can help give us an edge in times of war. And so the history of the world is that we have all kinds of religions with all kinds of gods or deities or spirits that offer help controlling the uncontrollable and managing the unmanageable because we know there's got to be more than us. There's got to be something extra out there. And that's what gods are for. You got to love idols. The best part about idols though, idols are manageable. Idols are controllable. And so it's a win-win situation. Here is a God that controls the uncontrollable, and yet I can control the God. Here's a God that can manage the unmanageable, but I can manage the idol. you got to love idols. Now, here we are. We're modern sophisticates. We know better, right? I mean, those, those poor, ignorant, superstitious people back then, they couldn't help themselves, but we know better. Well, we might know better, but we're no better. Nothing has changed. And we are all idolaters at heart. Still, we are idolaters at heart. A couple years ago, we were working our way through the book of Jeremiah, and we kind of found ourselves in a series within a series, and we did a whole series of of messages on American idols, looking at the idols that that, that still capture our hearts and our imaginations, idols that we are still prone to to gravitate toward and worship even as, as followers of Jesus Christ. And we kind of summarize them up this way. There's self, the God of self. I'm the center of the universe. Don't you know that? You know, if, it, if it's not all about me, it should be about me. So get on board. You know, it's, that's the idolatry of self. 
And, and we make God fit into that whole mold. We, again, we make God in our image. And God exists to make me happy. God is just here to help me live my best life now. That's backwards, isn't it? No, we're here to glorify God, not the other way around. That's the idolatry of self. There's the idolatry of sex. Folks, our culture, we live in an outdoor insane asylum. People have lost their ever-loving minds about every loving thing. It is absolutely insane what people think and believe and say. It's insanity. How did we get here? Well, the sexual revolution brought us here. There was a time when sex and marriage and child rearing or childbearing went together. You get married. When you're married, you get to have sex and you raise kids. They all went together. The sexual revolution separates all that. So now you can be married, but you don't have to have the other two things. You can have sex, but you don't have to have the other two things. You can have babies, but you don't have to have the other two things. And so now we've separated everything, and it's like a cafeteria line. And lo and behold, here we are living in insanity. Insanity. It's the idolatry of sex that has brought us here. Or the idolatry of stuff. It's all about the stuff. you got to have stuff. You need the new stuff, the best stuff, the most exciting stuff, and you live for the stuff. And you measure your life and happiness by stuff. It's the idolatry of stuff. Materialism. Excuse me. Or we have the idolatry of the state. The government. The government will give us the answers we need. The government will protect us. The government will manage the unmanageable and control the uncontrollable. How's that working out for you these days? <laughs> science. Oh, thank the Lord we have science. We have science and technology. And now science can answer all of our questions. And science can, can solve all of our problems. And science, you just have to follow the science. And the science will protect us and keep us safe and make us happy. And that's idolatry. They're all modern idols. We are idolaters at heart. Idols are manageable. But God is the true God. The living God, you don't manage him. He doesn't play well with others. <laughs> he cannot be controlled. He will not be manipulated. You cannot manage him. He just will not cooperate. Patrick Morley made a great statement some years ago. He said this, there is a God we want and there is a God who is and they are not the same God. There's the God we want. He does what I tell him when I tell him how I want him to do that. <laughs> That's the God you want. But there's the God who is, and is not the same God. Well, we need to keep going. You're not listening fast enough. God is unmanageable. Number two, God is uncontainable. Our great and awesome, mysterious God, he's uncontainable. He cannot be contained in a temple. Isaiah 66, God says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. And you think you can lock me in a house? <laughs> You're going to build me a house? You can't contain me in a house. This was the folly of the people of Jeremiah's day. In Jeremiah 7, you have the temple sermon. Jeremiah chapter 7, his contemporaries thought, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Hey, look, we got the temple of the Lord. God is in the temple. Nothing bad can happen to us, the temple of the Lord. And Jeremiah blows that whole silly superstition right out the door. It doesn't work that way. God cannot be contained in a temple. God cannot be contained in a location. In John chapter 4, we have Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman. And in the middle of that conversation in John chapter 4 and verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. 
Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. So that's that age-old debate. Samaritans think you worship up here on the mountain in Samaria. Jews think you worship God in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. God cannot be confined to a location. Thirdly, God cannot be confined to a culture. He's not contained in a culture. Newsflash. God is not American. <laughs> what? God's not an American. He's the God of the world. He's the God of nations. He is the Lord of history. Now, in the Old Testament, you find out that God chose the people of Israel to be his own special possession. And God had special dealings with the nation of Israel, but that's not the only nation he dealt with. And God can show mercy to whom he wants to show mercy. And he does. And he did. And God can judge a nation or he can show mercy to a nation. Israel notwithstanding. We come to the New Testament. We get our marching orders as the body of Christ. We're to preach the gospel to every creature. That's, that's everybody around the world. Make disciples of all the nations. Everybody. And in the body of Christ, there is no cultural distinction anymore. In fact, here's what Paul says in Colossians 3. There is a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. In other words, there's really two kinds of people. They're saved and lost. That's it. In Galatians chapter 3, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. God cannot be contained in a culture. And God cannot be contained by categories and systems. And here's what we're going to find out over this series of messages. God cannot be contained in our categories or our systems, especially our theological systems. And for millennia, theologians have tried their dead level best to pin God down. We're going to pin him down and we're going to classify him and we're going to organize him and we're going to systematize him and we're, going to, we're just going to, we're going to figure God out. If we can't control him, we can at least predict him. And so we're going to figure who he is, what he is, and how he works, and what he does, and, and we're just going to, we're going to reduce God down <laughs> to, to equations and principles and, and all the rest. And again, the problem is God does not play well with others, and he defies our systems. He defies our categories. He will not fit our, our equations. It just won't work that way. I love what... Russ Ramsey said, Russ Ramsey said this, as a pastor, I've seen the danger that comes with believing God can be solved like an equation. When we treat him like a system of theological points rather than the glorious creator of heaven and earth, we end up bending what we think about him to fit the structure we think contains him. The problem with this is that my 20-year-old understanding of God does not fit into the box I now, uh, that, my, that I know now in my 40s requires. You know, I know stuff in my 40s I didn't know in my 20s, in other words. And I have to believe that if I reach my 70s, my view of him will be different in many ways from what it does today. 
So we grow in our understanding of life and of God, and God just won't fit those systems at any point in time. He won't be contained. Here's the next thing. God is unpredictable. He's unmanageable. He's uncontainable. And he is unpredictable. Isaiah 55, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's unpredictable. You never know what he's going to do next. Numbers 22. God opens the mouth of a donkey and makes a donkey talk. That's different. (laughs) Never saw that happen before. Balaam was a prophet for hire. He was a character. I mean, he was a rascal. And God God made his donkey talk to him. It's a hilarious conversation. If you go back and read that, not now, but read it later. Numbers 22. God makes a donkey talk. That's a new one. The, The ten plagues. We just talked about the exodus from Egypt. The ten plagues dividing the Red Sea. God brought his people to the edge of the Red Sea. They're being pursued by Pharaoh's army. Now their back is against the wall. And they're in a box canyon. This is a military blunder. This is devastating. This is a catastrophe. Well, unless you're talking about the unpredictable God. So what does God do? God just divides the Red Sea. And there's a wall of water on the left. And there's a wall of water on the right. And the people of Israel cross the Red Sea on dry ground. And when Pharaoh's army tried to pursue, God just let the walls come back. And Pharaoh's army drowned. That's a new one. Didn't see that coming. That's unpredictable, isn't it? Unpredictable. Habakkuk chapter one. I don't know about you, but I kind of feel a kindred spirit with Habakkuk anymore. Habakkuk is looking around at his culture, his government, his society, and he's, he's crying out to the Lord, how long, O Lord? How long are you going to sit there and do nothing? You've got to intervene. You've got to do something. God, this is a mess. All I see is wickedness and violence and corruption and iniquity and sin. God, do something. And God says, oh, I'm about to do something. And if I tell you what it is, you won't believe it and you won't like it. What you going to do, God? I'm going to bring the Babylonians to town. And I'm going to judge my people. I'm going to use the Babylonians to judge my people. Whoa. God, you can't do that. You can't do that. God, they're worse than we are. We're bad, but we make them, I mean, they make us look good. You can't use somebody that's worse than us to judge us. And God says, yes, I can. Yes, I will. Unpredictable. It was inconceivable for Habakkuk that God, that God wouldn't do that, but God did do that. We have the birth of Christ. God sent forth in the fullness of time. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. And God sent forth his son, conceived in the womb of a virgin. And we'll talk about the incarnation later on. Who could have seen that coming? Totally unpredictable. In John chapter 11, Jesus deliberately let his friend die. His name was Lazarus. Jesus knew Lazarus. They were buddies. He loved Lazarus. Mary, Martha, they they were close. And Jesus gets word that Lazarus is sick. He knows Lazarus is sick. Jesus could have hustled on over there. He could have beat feet. He got there in time. He could have, he could have healed Lazarus. could have saved his life. Jesus didn't do that. In fact, if you want the truth of the matter, Jesus didn't even have to be there to heal him. Yeah, John chapter 4, Luke chapter 7, Jesus could heal long distance. <laughs> he didn't even have to be there. He could have done that virtually. He didn't do it. Instead, Jesus deliberately let his friend die. 
Why would you do that? Well, Jesus did it so that the Father would be glorified, the Son would be glorified, and that his disciples would believe. So Jesus tarries, shows up four days late, misses the funeral and everything. Martha comes out, Jesus. If only you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Mary comes out, Jesus. If only you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. There are people in the crowd. You know what? I bet if Jesus had been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. He could heal blind people. I bet he could have healed Lazarus too. If only he'd been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. For the last four days, Mary and Martha and other friends and loved ones of Lazarus, they've been tore up with grief. They've been grieving, crying, weeping for four days. Why would Jesus do that? Well, you know the story. Jesus came to raise a man from the dead, not heal a man sick. He raised Lazarus from the dead, and many people believed. The Father was glorified, the Son was glorified, and people believed. Wow. Didn't see that coming. Unpredictable. A crucified Messiah. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, We preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block, to Gentiles foolishness. Christ means Messiah. It's a Greek word for Messiah. Messiah is the anointed one of God. The Jews were looking for the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the promised one of the Old Testament. But now the Messiah they wanted, the Messiah they expected, was a political military leader who would show up, he would unite the people of Israel, restore the nation of Israel, get rid of the Romans, vanquish whatever other enemies wanted to stick their head out of the hole, and restore the sovereign nation of Israel to its glory and power of the days of David and Solomon. That's the Messiah they wanted. You know, there's the God you want, and there's the God who is. Well, there's the Messiah you want, and there's the Messiah who is. That's not the Messiah they wanted. That's not the Messiah Jesus came to be. Jesus came to be a, a suffering servant and a crucified Messiah. We preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block. A Messiah who dies on a cross. Didn't see that coming. <laughs> unpredictable. That's the point. God is unpredictable. You never know what he's going to do next. Here's the next thing I want you to... Oh, let me... By the way, listen to Mike Ayer. Mike Ayer said this. Part of our problem is that we confuse God's reliability with God's predictability. God's reliable, right? He's reliable, not predictable. I have become convinced that one of the main projects of modern Christianity is to remove the mystery of biblical faith. We are far more comfortable with tips, steps, and techniques for living than we are with ruthlessly trusting the unpredictable God of the Bible. That's gold. We are far more comfortable with tips, steps, and techniques for living than we are with ruthlessly trusting the unpredictable God of the Bible. Amen. Well, next thing I want you to know, God is unfathomable. We need to hurry. God is unfathomable. Unfathomable. One, God is infinite and eternal. He's unfathomable because he's infinite and eternal. If you want to, turn with me to, to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Over in 1 Timothy 1, or just listen. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.17. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. He is the king eternal, immortal, invisible. Move down to chapter 6, 1 Timothy chapter 6. In verse 15, at the end of verse 15, 1 Timothy 6, 15, 
He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. He is infinite and eternal. Jeremiah 10.10 says that he is the true God. He's the living God, the everlasting King. He is eternal. He is infinite. Now, we throw those terms around a lot. Eternal, eternity, infinite, and infinity. And we think we know what that means, but we really don't. You think about eternity past. God has always been, there's no beginning of God. He has existed in eternity past. It just it goes and goes and goes. We can't even imagine eternal future. In Christ Jesus, we have eternal life. He that believes on him shall never die. Eternal life. Infinity. Really, these are theoretical concepts. They are abstractions. We throw them around, but we can't wrap our minds around them. Our finite minds, with our finite experience, everything is finite for us. We really can't even wrap our minds around the infinite and the eternal. But God is the eternal king. He is infinite. Not only that, he is inescapable. He is inescapable. And by inescapable, I mean, one, he's omniscient. That means he knows all. He sees all and knows all. You cannot escape the... The, the, the sight and the knowledge of God. Psalm 147.5, Great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. Hebrews 4.13, There is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. No creature is hidden from his sight. He knows, it. He knows where you are, what you're doing, what you said, what, you, what you're thinking. Proverbs 15.3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. He's omniscient. He knows all. He sees all. He's omnipresent. That means he is everywhere. Again, he's inescapable. He's omnipresent. And that doesn't mean he's in everything. That's pantheism. God is in everything and everything is God. That's pantheism. That's wrong. But God is everywhere. The psalmist marveled at that. In Psalm 139, the psalmist said, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go to the grave, you're there. If I go to the remotest part of the sea, you're there. Where can you go to get away from God? Where can you go that God isn't? Nowhere. God's everywhere. And then God is omnipotent. That is to say, he's all-powerful. Exodus, Genesis 18.14, Is anything too difficult for the Lord? And the answer is no. Jeremiah 32, 17, Ah, Lord God, we sing this song, this uh, chorus based on this verse. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for thee, right? Know the song? Nothing is too difficult for God. Revelation 19, we get a glimpse. We, we get to hear a heavenly chorus of worship. And in the heavens, before the presence of God, they are singing, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God the Almighty reigns. And the word Almighty means all power. Having all power. He is omnipotent. He is inescapable. He is inscrutable. God is inscrutable. That is to say, he's mysterious, he's incomprehensible, he is unsearchable. Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. His ways are not our ways. Can we be honest? 
I read the Bible, and there are some things in the Bible I don't like. And there are some things in the Bible that God did or God allowed, and I don't understand it. I don't like it. Here's an example. We might come back to this later on. Job, Job's family, you know, Job's 10 kids, perfect family, all died in one awful, terrible, no good, very bad day. Well, that's not fair. You know, what'd they do wrong? I, I don't like that. I don't like that part of the story. It's not fair to them. We don't have to like it. We don't have to understand it. God's ways are not our ways. His ways are unfathomable. That's true in, in history, isn't it? There are some things that happen in history. We can look back and we say, I don't like that. I don't understand it. And if God didn't do it, he allowed it. Why did God allow that? And frankly, there are things that happen in our own lives and happen in our experience or in, in, to and with and around the people around us that we don't understand. Why did God allow that? Why him? Why her? Why this? Why me? I don't understand it. If God didn't do it, God allowed it. Why God allowed it? I don't understand it. But God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are unfathomable and unsearchable. In that sense, God is mysterious. He is inscrutable. And then God is indescribable. We heard Jesus say in John 4, God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. We've already heard that God is invisible. He dwells in unapproachable light. No man has seen God. No man can see God. He is invisible. And even the Bible writers, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, use anthropomorphic language to describe God. That's just a big word, which means we, we attach human characteristics to God. God's not a human. He's not a man. He's not a person. He's not like us. But we talk about God's eyes. God doesn't have eyes. He, he, he's spirit. But we say he has eyes because we have eyes. We can connect with that. We talk about the hands of God, the arms of God, these kinds of things. God changing his mind, things like this. God's not like that. Why would we attach human characteristics to a God who's not human? We're just trying to conceptualize something that we can't conceptualize. We're trying to get a handle on something that we just really can't even get a handle on. And so it's something to grab at. Bottom line, God's indescribable. You just can't, you can't put him into words, can you? He is indescribable. Are you getting frustrated yet? Oh, I'm just getting you ready. I want to tell you right now, this, this, this whole series is going to be frustrating. And I know what you're thinking. Brother Jeff, you already frustrate me all the time. It can't get any worse, you know. But I want to tell you, we're going to have a whole lot more questions than answers by the time we're done. I mean, it's just the, mystery, the mysteries, unsolved, unsolvable mysteries of the faith that when it's all said and done, we can't understand, we can't explain it. We just take it by faith. The weird stuff of Christianity. Max Lucado said this, the loss of mystery has led to a loss of majesty. The more we know, the less we believe. No wonder there is no wonder. One last thing I want you to know about God. God is unavoidable. He's unavoidable. Hebrews 4.13, there is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He is the God with whom you have to do. He's the God you're going to have to deal with, and he's going to deal with you. Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, judgment. There's more about God that we don't know 
than we do know. But here's one thing we do know about God. You will meet him. There is coming a day of judgment, a day of reckoning. It is appointed unto man once to die and after this judgment. Every one of us, you have a date with deity. God told his people in Amos' day, in the context of judgment, prepare to meet thy God. He's about to judge them. Prepare to meet thy God. Get ready. One day you're going to meet your God. There is a day of judgment. John got a glimpse of that. In Revelation 20, he describes it, that the, the great white throne judgment day. And he says, And I saw the dead standing before the Lord, both small and great. And the books were opened. And people were judged according to what was written in the books. That is your life. The things that you, the things you said, the things you did, the things you didn't do. I mean, all, of, all things are open and they bear. They're written in the books. And people were judged by what was written in the books. And anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. That's the day of judgment. All right, now that tells me I want my name written in the book of life. I don't want to be cast into the lake of fire. I want my name written in the book of life. How do you do that? You trust Jesus. The good news, the bad news is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, every one of us. We've all sinned against God. The wages of sin is death. We are all condemned in our sins. And that judgment day, that's us. That's you and me. Unless you trust Jesus. Christ saves sinners. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. That's one of those mysteries we'll talk about. It's a mystery. We preach it, we believe it, we tell other people, we want, we want other people to know it and believe it. But folks, when it's all said and done, it's mysterious. That God made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us, that's mysterious. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ died for our sins, he was buried, he was raised again. And if you will repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, he'll save you from your sins. Save you from the death you have earned. Save you from the judgment of God, the wrath to come, and the lake of fire. You can be saved if you'll repent and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Have you been saved? Have you done that? If not, or if you're not sure, if you have questions, or if you want to, today's the day and now's the time. And in a moment, we're going to stand up and sing, and, and I'll be standing down here, and I invite you to come to me and say, Preacher, I need Jesus, or I want to be saved, I want to be born again, however you want to say it. But today's the day. Say yes to Jesus Christ. Be saved from your sins and the judgment to come, the wrath of God, the lake of fire. Say yes to Jesus. Maybe you're looking for a church home and God has brought you here. If so, you come. Say, I want to join the church. We'll just take it from there. We'll make that happen. Or maybe you need to be baptized. We can talk about that, what that means. Maybe you need to pray with somebody. We'd love to pray with you. Whatever God might be saying to you, you say yes to him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you. We worship you as the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. And Lord, we praise you and we love you for the things that we do know about you. And Lord, we praise you and we worship you for the things we don't know and we can't understand. You are the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Lord, I pray for the one who's never been saved. Help them to see and hear and know they need Jesus Christ whether they've grown up in church, whether they've kept the rules or do all the religious things, 
they need Jesus. And Lord, help them to see and to know they need Christ. And they need him now. They need him desperately. Bring them to the cross even today. Lord, we pray that you'd seal this message to our hearts. May it inform our worship. May it activate our, our service and our ministry and our evangelism as we just pause to remember the awesome God we serve. Take charge of this time of decision. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.